Tractor Time, the podcast for farmers who care about the earth. Good day, it's Tractor Time Podcast, brought to you by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. I'm your host, Ryan Slaybaugh, and we're recording today from Greeley, Colorado. Our guest today is Edwin Blosser, a longtime instructor in the art of crafting and utilizing high-quality compost and production-scale farming. Uh, so we're going deep into eco-agriculture this hour. He's going to talk about specific compounds and compost to build, advise us about cover crops, and help us connect the dots between profitability and soil structure. That's a big question, but uh, we have some time, so we're going to get through all that. Uh, but first, I thought I'd share a story. Earlier this week, I got a call from Ulrich Schreier. For those who don't know, he's one of the original advisors, advisors excuse me, to Acres USA. He's attended our conference early in the history of it, in the, back in the 70s, and now lives in France and leads a team of researchers looking at biodynamics. Uh, it's an important field with a lot of interest, but not a lot of research to back it up. So uh, we'll, we'll share that research at some point once we review it. Uh, his quote, which is really what I wanted to share, has been my beacon of motivation this week, and a lot of you might benefit from it as well. So uh, before hanging up, he told me, There are a lot of cracks showing in conventional agriculture that my generation helped create. But now, the real work begins. Find those cracks, and plant as many of your acres USA trees in them as you can. I'll read that again. There are a lot of cracks showing in conventional agriculture that my generation helped create. But now, the real work begins. Find those cracks, and plant as many of your acres USA trees in them as you can. And that's what we try to do every day. We try to plant our trees, but uh, we do need help uh, from you, our listeners, um, and people especially like our guest today, Edwin Blosser, who never hesitates to teach, share, or explain the tactics that has made him successful and made his farming tactics very successful. The company he founded, Midwest Biosystems, uh, provides compost, windrow turners, and other equipment, as well as the knowledge needed to economically implement sustainable organic growing practices. Uh, his goal is for farmers to consistently produce high value compost. Uh, humified compost, and he'll explain that later. Uh, you can learn more at www.midwestbiosystems.com. Um, but for now, we're going to get into our interview with Edwin Blosser, uh, recorded on Thursday, November 2nd, 2017. Thank you for listening. Edwin, we're so happy to have you on our podcast today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Ryan. I appreciate the privilege of being here. Thank you. The uh, first question uh, uh, I'd like to ask is, and I ask all our guests this, is to tell us about where you are, where you're sitting today, and uh, what you might be able to see out your window. Well, I'm sitting here in my office. We are uh, situated in Tampico, Illinois. I should say rural route Tampico. We purchased, we purchased an old elevator, and that elevator... Uh, which is no longer used by the original owners, is now used by our company. We actually ship edible crops out from this area in the organic farming world, so we also operate an organic operation around. We kind of feel like we need to prove our own punch on our own farm, you know, Ryan. And so as I sit here in my corner office, in the office, uh, I could look out and get distracted, but they're loading black beans that go to Chipotle after they get processed. So how does that sound? That sounds uh, that sounds a lot better. I'm looking at a parking lot, so I, I like your view a little better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to get in, uh, and to our listeners, we're going to get into all sorts of aspects of compost and farm management and cover crops today. 
Uh, before we get really into the, the details and uh, uh, the science of agriculture with, with Edwin today, um, I'm going to ask Edwin, could you tell us a little bit about your life in agriculture and how did you get to where you are today? Certainly, uh, Ryan, that's an excellent question. I, I would just say, uh, as I start in, first of all, I have a whole series of teleclasses about uh, one of them called Edwin's Story, and you reminded me of that. <clears throat> and so for those that want to can get on our website. But uh, I got into this um, basically because of my parents not being able to farm when I was a young, young lad, and then finally got that opportunity, I kind of caught the enthusiasm and the gratitude my parents had. Hey, finally we can get to farm, you know. They've really wanted a farm to raise their children on and so forth. And I really caught that. Then along comes the late 70s, early 80s, and we got caught with a little too much debt and about 21% interest. And we didn't lose the farm, but we got precious close. And with that experience, I came kind of out of that saying, you know, if there's any vow I would make, it would be how can I dedicate the rest of my life in helping the family farm really thrive. And uh, so it's been a passion of mine to to do that. I, I uh, could go into a lot more detail, and I'll probably just summarize it to say it this way, that uh, the Lord had it kind of intended and seemed like he was just... Uh, putting me in the right spot at the right time. I studied under four trainers in seven and a half years with the experiential training where I started to become a soils consultant for the renewable farming system, meaning that the land gets better as you farm it and also be more economical. And, and this started in 1984 and ended, as you know the math, uh, up into 1991. And with that training was unique in the sense I didn't just sit down and have it academic. I could go to a month to month and a half of academic uh, work, and then I had to go out in the field and prove it out in the field. And and uh, while it was a slow way to go, that slow boat really made it solid because it really put me into the practitioner's seat. So we we would call ourselves application experts because that's really how I was trained. Does that make sense, Ron? No, that does. I appreciate you. It's, 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 I love hearing people's stories about how they got to where uh, they are today. As they said, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and I heard somebody say the other day, and, I'll, and this is a little unrelated, but I love it. It was something along the lines of if you look too far long term, you're going to miss the, the, the shiny new opportunity in the corner of your eye. And so uh, it's always a balance of, of being uh, of trying to guess where you're going to end up in life and where you actually end up in life, so I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I smile by that because I really felt God's call. I felt like this is the right thing, and I entered it with all the enthusiasm. But if I have to admit something very freely, I would say I'd have never encountered and have never embarked on that seven-and-a-half-year journey had I known what I was going to go through. But by the time I learned what I was going to learn and learned where I was going, I was already far enough in it that I didn't want to stop, so I kept going, and am I ever glad that I did, because it really helps me from an experiential point of view to learn these concepts, not just uh, in my mind, but just true valid experience. And so today, we are in 26 different countries, and the only reason we are, in my opinion, is, is that we are able to apply some of these things, just hardcore application issues. 
Well, we, we're, we're glad you powered through as well. Um, I should have mentioned early in this podcast that uh, uh, Edwin will be speaking at our conference December 6th through 9th in Columbus, Ohio this year and uh, teaching others about what he's learned in his career. And we're really thankful that he's been a part of our our family and our uh, uh, family of writers and experts and authors through the years uh, to speak at our conference. So, um, again, we're really we're really glad you plowed through as well. Um, we're yeah. Well, thank thank you, Ryan. We're uh, let's let's talk about compost for a little bit. Uh, sure, sure. Start right there. Uh, you had in our conversations before this uh, recording, we talked a little bit about sometimes that when we bring up the word compost, we think gardening, small scale. Uh, 30 gallon bins and wheelbarrows, but um, you have a little different approach to compost. Could you kind of talk about how you use compost on your large scale farms and the farmers you work with? Yeah, most certainly. Uh, <clears throat> as I have looked at it, uh, Ryan, uh, as I entered through the uh, entrance of graduating from my experiential training, my seven and a half years of training, I encountered uh, some technology from Europe that was how to control the enzymatic activity in the root zone. And since I was really focused on soil fertility and and getting the absolute best results and the most highest uh, return financially and soil-wise, I wanted to go after this. And so I started getting into this, and I learned that uh, these people were doing it through a special type of compost called humus compost over in Europe. And man, I wasn't interested in compost. That, that's not me. You know, I'm in the soils consulting business, and and this is something I want to do. But listen, I found out that they've got 4,000 different enzymes that they have categorized and what they function at in the root zone. And I needed to get a hold of that information. And so I decided, uh, long story made short, to go over to Europe had several people going with me, and they all backed out except for myself. So in 1992, I took a trip over to Europe, went to 11 different country, countries over in Europe, and studied under the farms that were implementing what these people were advocating, which was an unfamiliar term to me at that time called humus compost. And again, my attitude was, well, I can't do compost. I'm in large-scale farming. I can't get there from here that's for the garden folks, the truck farmers and stuff like that. We can't do that large scale. And so I go over there and I study underneath and I see some things that I was absolutely amazed at. For example, how could one get from 2.6% organic matter and in the first 10 years using cover crops and regular compost only gain two-tenths of 1%. So from 1972 to 1982, they had went from 2.8, sorry, 2.6% organic matter to 2.8% organic matter. Well, in 1982, this gentleman in Europe came over to America and met up with a doctor here who spent 35 to 38 years learning how to make a special type of humus called humus protein. And that humus protein could be built while making compost, which made the compost totally different. And that's really what's amazing is, is the next 10 years, it went from 2.8% organic matter to 16.5%. So the first set of 10 years, 
it grew two-tenths of a percent. The second set of 10 years, using human technology, it grew to 16.5% from 2.8. Now, am I saying that the organic matter does go up that much if you use humus compost anywhere in the world? I am not saying that. But it caught my attention, and I decided I'm going to look at this biologically. So I studied under his... Uh, microscope is the electron microscope uh, under and and went through some of his research and quizzed him for three and a half days straight just solid uh, it was a very very intense situation but then for the next several years uh, I would say that we spent an awful lot of time uh, either coming to to they coming to America or getting on the phone with each other and trying to get the gist of what this is really about. And so at the end of the day, that moved me into getting into compost. And so my first uh, attempt at it was kind of interesting and laughable. But um, I was pretty eager to learn and brought those folks from Europe over here five times in the essence of the next 24 months to really be sure I learned it. And in that process, started making an extract, a liquid extract out of it, then getting it into the large-scale farming and through their planters and so forth, and, and uh, bingo, we had a winner. And so that started our career down this humus compost process. And then we continued to do some more studies, and we all of a sudden discovered using humus compost, we can mix them, pre-mix them with minerals, and balance the base saturations as I was taught to do. And instead of having a 40 to 60% success rate in getting the stuff moved the way it's supposed to be moved, we could use 10% the amount of minerals and have close to an 80% success rate. And so I was sold on this humus compost. I, I was saying, no, wait a minute, this is large scale stuff. This is stuff that's very economical. This is stuff where I can take magnesium levels in the 30% range and lower them to a much better nitrogen cycle process so I don't have to use near as much nitrogen to grow the same yields. Those are just examples, of course. But I learned that humus compost is a tool. I learned that using that tool correctly made for phenomenal things happen, such as forcing soil particles to come apart and so forth. So there is a difference between compost and humus compost. Now, I, I would like to just make this comment mm -hmm. that you started this question out. We are certainly out there for the small guy. Mm -hmm. And I would like to make it this comment that it seemed to me, and I've kind of, uh, and I may even comment more about it later, but it seemed to me like we had to figure it out on a large scale, make sure that's economical, and then it has allowed us to help the smaller farmer as well. Does that make sense, Ron? Yeah, no, that does make sense. I think the one point I'd love you to to just make sure uh, uh, folks are clear on is really, um, you know, if you could give that maybe one or two sentence description of what is the fundamental difference between humus compost and compost that most people are familiar with. Yes. I would like to answer that in two fundamental brief stretches. The first one is not directly answering it, but it builds up to the second one. First and foremost, <clears throat> all things grow fundamentally mostly from the environment and sun. Mm -hmm. 
and I want to describe what, what, what I mean by that by giving you a story. Right. Then I'll go to the actual answer. So a Flemish physician in the 1800s put together a study, a five-year study, where he put exactly 200 pounds of soil in a pot, carefully had a lid over it, and put a five-pound willow tree in this pot, did nothing but water it, and in five years that tree was 164 pounds instead of five pounds. Or, a different way to say it, it grew 159 pounds. In five years, putting only water out there. So his logic was, and he even went to test some of the water, and sure, there was some calcium in the water, and there was some logical stuff, and so he says maybe a little bit comes from that, but ultimately very, very little. So i got to figure this out. So he takes the tree out of the soil, carefully strips the soil off of the roots, carefully weighs the soil, starting out with 200 pounds five years earlier. That 159-pound tree gain, it weighed 164 by then, minus five, Mm-hmm. It now, that soil weighed 199 pounds and 14 ounces. In other words, two ounces of soil were gained by this uh, taken out of the soil. So, where I'm going with this subject is this. When you realize that most of the growth comes from the environment and sun, if you really know the soil is truly the key to unlock that ability to harvest more sun and atmospheric energy. If you really know it as that, what most people miss is when they let it rot, most of that stuff blows back into the air. What came from the atmosphere, most people lose back into the air. What we do with humus technology, and I call it technology because we use a liquid and a solid compost, humus compost, solid both as tools of the trade. Mm-hmm. It's it's more about the management of the farm than it is just using those two tools. Please understand that correctly. But if you ask the question, what's the difference between compost and humus compost? Humus compost is made in such a way that we capture as much as possible of all the stuff that came from the environment. Regular compost just rotted, and most of that blew up in the air. Now, did that come through or not? No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, I uh, um, I appreciate that. that- we, ca- we, capture, we capture what grew from the environment and sun energy and turn it into a humus protein using special microbes to eat those volatile compounds that are lighter than air, that most people, when they make compost, lose up in the air. We can't. We can't afford to lose it in the air. It's kind of like this. If you really would want to use last year's fertilizer to grow this year's crop, you would have to understand 97% of the growth, or better, came from the environment and will go back to the environment unless you do some kind of a residue program in the fall to capture it. It is really that simple, Ryan. That's a... Well, that's that's fascinating. That's something we just don't talk talk about a whole lot. So, uh, you use another term called humus technology when we were talking. Is that related to this idea of capturing that? It is very much related to that because the only way the microbes that we have 
will build a humus protein is if they can eat and take in the volatile compounds that came into these plant cells from the atmosphere and sun. It is the only way the protein is made. It's not made out of the the lignin, the tough stuff that you really get to see. It's the stuff that you don't get to see. It's the ions. So what really happens when you make humus is, is you are totally only able to make humus with those microbes. In other words, they live and die whether or not they can capture the volatile compounds that came into growing that organic matter in the first place. So humus technology is using the technology of previous growth that most people do not. I appreciate that. I'd wrap up our, our part about compost today. If a, if a farmer audience members listen and say, you know, how do I get started with a compost program? What's your advice to them? Sure. <clears throat> we often will say there's two complete solid answers for that. One is get to do a test from a supplier not too far from you and start using it and trying it on your farm mm -hmm. and then see if it is something you want to go with further. That's one answer. And it's a solid one if you got somebody close that does it. Yeah. And the second answer is go to somewhere where they're doing it. Yeah. And if if uh, if you have to travel a little bit, well, there's a lot of good things that can be learned on someone else's operation. So I would encourage try try to find out where it's being done, and go talk to the actual practitioners. Then lastly, we have three-day workshops that we do conduct three to four times a year. And those workshops are largely made, or two-thirds of it are built around showing you how to do it, and the last third is why it works and the different success stories of different people who have done it and how they have done it and we also try to give a, a real-life field experience as well, just trying to be sure that this message gets out there. I hope that helps, your question there. That's, that's exactly what we're looking for. I mean, that's one of the things that I that helped me fall in love with agriculture in general is just um, the amount of people who are willing to share what they know. It's just a really Absolutely. In that way. It, it, freely, freely given, freely sharing. And, and in my mind, we have been given the privilege to live in a land where we live in which allows us with lots of gratitude to do something with our lives. Well put. I like that a lot. Um, well, that, uh, we'll move on to, uh, and touch a couple other subjects other than compost uh, for folks, just in case somebody's inter not interested in compost out there, I can't imagine. But um, you have a lot of experience managing weeds, and, and I always say every time we talk about weeds on this show that we don't talk about it enough because it really is the uh, you know cornerstone of where we are involved with farming and weed management and, and, and sometimes those are the hardest choices to make as a farmer is when you uh, are trying to tackle a, a very difficult weed um, program or, or, or issue on your farm um, and it gets sensitive and we get uh, and conflict happens around when we start talking about that so it's a, just a great topic but I know you have a lot of experience with um, controlling weeds and uh, uh, so I thought I'd ask you just a really basic question when a farmer comes up to you and just asks how do I best control weeds uh, how do you usually respond to that? What's your answer? Yes, uh, right. Uh, I, I I will always just simply say with a little bit of a smile that, well, you know, this sin-cursed earth is going to have some, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And I think most of the people just kind of grin and say, yeah. But then what I where I go with that is this. 
We have, through the research that uh, not only we have conducted, but there's plenty of other good research out there that will support this data, is showing that the germplasma of uh, the category what we call noxious weeds, and I don't want to necessarily, I could... Uh, answer any questions for someone who would like to call in and what is a noxious weeds and I would point you to several books written but but my point is is the germ plasma on a noxious weed has to have some form of an anaerobic gas to trigger now the reason I I like to just stop right there old timers uh, many times have said to uh, uh, my dad and different ones, he says, man, if you get a, a lamb's quarter out there or a buttonweed or, you, you know, you could use almost any other name, Johnson grass, uh, maybe not so much because it's rhizomium uh, produced or, or replenished. But, but when you look at those seeds, some of those last 40, 50 years before they wake up and grow. So you just don't want to have a single weed in your field because it could be affecting you and they each plant has maybe 10 20 30 40,000 seeds that can last up to 40 years <laughs> what that story has often been told now for our listeners maybe this is brand new thought for them maybe it isn't but i would i would uh say that most old timers would very much identify with that having said that what i've always now today because of what i know am puzzled by why did they stop there with that story? Why didn't they go on and say, and we haven't yet figured out why they finally do wake up 40 years from now? If they'd have just asked that question or made that statement, I think it would have lead, led into some research that would have been good. Because now we know, for example, foxtail grass would take 0.002 parts per million of carbon monoxide, not dioxide, but monoxide, or it will just remain wet and not germinate. You know, you got to have temperature, you got to have moisture, you got to have a little uh, uh, compression of moisture against the seed germ, but yet all of that it will still stay dormant unless it's triggered by a low, low level of carbon monoxide, meaning. Somehow, carbon dioxide got caught in the soil and wasn't allowed to proliferate and gaseate back out of the soil, which, by the way, some people think is bad, but it really isn't. We really depend a lot on the growth of our plants from the CO2 that's being exhausted out of the soil, touching the bottom of the leaves and triggering the photosynthesis process. But if that soil happens to have a crust, or even if it's extra tight and doesn't breathe freely, that's what it takes to get these carbon monoxides to build up. It's just a conversion of carbon dioxide to a place of less oxygen that triggers weeds. So suffice it all to say this, that what we want is a soil that's friable, and that word friable could be... Uh, described as being porous and the word porous could be described as soil particles that automatically do not want to lay flat against each other therefore they have open spaces throughout the soil and if you look at what that really means some people call it tilth for example but if you really look at what that means it means an arena where 
the weed seeds can become wet, but they won't necessarily germinate if it's well aerated. Do you understand what I said, Ryan? Yeah, it really the density of the soil has a lot to do with the future of that plant. So we would we would look at the soil structure as our lead key indicator of how do we handle this. And humus technology, particularly the humus compost, forces those soil particles to become more porous or friable. And so obviously you get the connection of how we and why we have a lot less weeds uh, growing in our organic crops than even perhaps some conventional farmers beside us as well as some other organic farmers around us who do not use humus compost, there is a significant difference, as most farmers around here will say. And I don't want to say that boastfully, but just as a distinction of how that helps. So, yeah, weed control is about controlling the structure of the soil, but I will not be proper to close the subject without emphasizing it is more than just that. We do want to manage our cropping programs so that we can have, particularly in our organic operation, we can have the right tool used before emergence of our crop and after, so it really takes very little outside influence to to uh, what does germinate, even though it may not be very much, even though it may be lower pressure than most people, we still will get some weeds, and we have to have good weed management, which means being extremely timely. We don't plant if we feel like it's going to rain within 30 hours of the seed going in the ground. We just will stop. That's just one example. And so it is a weed management strategy that I don't have time to talk about that I do not want to just not mention I hope that made sense, Ryan. No, it, it, it really did. I appreciate that. And we might have you back at some point where we can talk about that exclusively if you, if you got more to say. That'd be great. I would be happy to do that. I'm going to just take a quick moment and remind our listeners that uh, they're listening to Tractor Time podcast brought to them by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. Our guest today is Edwin Blosser. Uh, the company he founded, Midwest Biosystems, provides all sorts of information and tactics for using compost on your large or small-scale farm. Uh, we'll get back to Edwin here uh, right now. In fact, um, we talked. We just talked about weed control. We've talked about compost today. We've we really dug into the idea of humus involving uh, and, and and the technology to capture the, the important humus elements in compost. We talked about weed control and making sure that uh, farmers are and 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 listening to Edwin talk about farmers and the the density and the soil structure is so important for weed management. Um, Cover cropping is another thing. It's, a, it's this time of year. It's obviously one of the big questions we get here is about cover cropping tactics. Harvest is just over. Uh, does that play into your strategy at all as well with when you work with farmers? Absolutely, Ryan. Uh, that's a, if if I would talk about any management technique that I would see as a big deal is cover crops. And then what do you do with those cover crops prior to plant and how you get the the seed in the ground when you do plant so that it is not touching any organic matter against any seed because we insist on pick fence absolutely uh, possibly as possible as perfect singulation as possible with no skips. 
knowing in an organic farm if we do that we get high yields now we did have one field that has some poor drainage if anyone was to come and visit they would uh, i could point that out this year we had six seven inches of rain in 24 hours and it did give us some water damage but where that same field was where we weren't and i can show it on the yield map or organic corn yielded 323 bushels per acre and this is something that I want to say now mm-hmm. that is not necessarily just to our point, although it is to the point. I would like to make the comment that management of our farming operation is worth more than any one particular tool, even if I talk about the tools of humus. And I say that because from a total integrity point of view, poor management and humus technology will not necessarily succeed. Really, really good management and not have humus may still succeed, it just won't succeed as much. I hope I made that clear because I feel like that's the real truth of the matter. Yeah, that the the, the idea of farm management involves a lot of a lot of pieces that you have to put together to make it happen. And if one of those pieces are there, but you have a good coordinated strategy, it would work, but uh, uh, but it really comes under really understanding the full 360 degree strategy for the for the farm um, and 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 what you're trying to grow. Is that do I have that about right? Did I summarize that okay? I, I like I like the way you have coined that. I could not have coined it better. I, I really appreciate that. Thank you, Ryan. <laughs> well, good. I got, sometimes I don't get that so right, so I appreciate that. Um, the let's talk about farm management again real quick because I do think that's really important. And I think that's another thing that sometimes um, there is some basics out there, but there's also um, ways to kind of take those basics and really um, go that nth degree and, and really become a top-notch farm manager or a top-notch farm. Uh, could you, uh, it, without, um, and, and let me know if this is uh, not a good question, but could you talk about that difference between basic farm management and really that top-notch level farm management and what separates those two? Yeah, I would like to, um I would like to give you a couple examples between the two. Would that help? That'd be perfect. That's great. Okay. Listen. Uh, first and foremost, uh, when I talk about top management people, I would just like to pass on the fact that uh, where have I learned top management from our customers? Okay. And so this is just gratitude towards our customers. I I will also say my father has taught me a lot, and my father-in-law who I've worked for, who has a very large organic operation. He farms about 1,400 acres, organic acres, a uh, little larger than our own, in fact, but uh, he would be also classified as one of those top management people. And, and you know, I'll just give you some examples. For example, uh, are we flexible when we go to the field that we will actually turn around and go back out of the field? Are we flexible when we go to the field that we say, whoops, we have a rotary hoe, but it actually is going to take a harrow. Mm-hmm. Or we better use a, uh, a weed flamer, even though it's not emerged, as opposed to my rotary hoe or whatever. Are we able to be flexible? Are we able to understand that it's not just uh, uh, plug in this deal and play? It's not that way. We are working with life. We are working with environment. Environment changes, weather changes, timing changes. Are we always on time? When something needs to be done, are we there? 
is that process going? I'll give you an example. My father-in-law has always told me, he says, you know, we've grown soybeans for as long as I've lived. I've always found that there's a three- to five-day window, and I've not seen it happen in 40-some years where we didn't have that three- to five-day window. But then he looks at me kind of real sharply, and he says, but you better be out in the field in those five days. (laughs) And I thought that's a really good example of saying, when things have to be done, they are done. They do get done. It's not just about theory, but it's about practical application. I think you could apply that to just about every project I've ever done, from painting my house to just about anything. You're exactly right. Um, it is that work yeah. ethic, and uh, and, and I, I'm guilty of that. Sometimes I let the plan override what I would to be doing. I would I would say I'm a student. That's all I would say. Uh, that's 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 a great outlook. Um, I, I appreciate that as well. Um, we're going to conclude uh, with one kind of big question for you. Um, it's the million dollar okay. question, for lack of a better way to put it, but. Um, help us kind of summarize this whole thing between the idea of being a good farm manager, a good profitable farm manager, and a good soil health practitioner. Can you connect those dots for us? I think I can. I would like to just simply methodically grow through some bullet points, if I may. That would be welcome. Thank you. Okay. First of all, as we mentioned, it does take a lot of management. Things are in place and being timely. As I mentioned, it takes friable, effective, fertile soil, something I call the new ground effect. You know, uh, the new ground effect is kind of maybe worded differently. Some people call it virgin soil. Mm -hmm. And how do you get your farm back to a virgin soil-like uh, characteristic. That is our goal, and we strive for that every year. Have good genetics. Don't have competition from irregular timing of kernels of corn, for example, germinating. If you get them to germinate within 30 minutes of each other, you're going to have maximum yield as long as your spacing is right and your depth is right. Don't have any economical weed competition. And obviously, we can't control the weather, but uh, the weather can play a factor, and so we have to work on our controllables, and I just got done mentioning a lot of those. Mm-hmm. And then on the soil fertility side, to wrap that kind of up, you, we got to capture last year's inputs. We just have to. And when I say inputs, I'm not just talking about what we spent at the co-op or the P&K we put on. I'm talking about the sun energy, the photosynthesis process of the atmospheric energy going into the crop. Hello, that's all free stuff. Why can't we use it for next year? Because we let it blow off in the air. It's always lighter than air. Most of the stuff in those plants, when they start rotting, those each and every little cell busts open, 97% of it whoops up into the air. So we got to capture last year's inputs by having a really good residue management process, then cover cropping, and then managing cover crops so that it doesn't take away from our germination process in the spring. And then we got to have well-drained soil. As I mentioned, the one of our fields, we need to get that soil tiled. we got to have soil structure that just absolutely those soil particles resist in compacting together. We've got to just manage those process. And if I look at all of that, Uh, I guess I feel like in summary, um, even with those things in place, farming is farming, and uh, there's always some curves being thrown at us, but I always like to be able to look back and say I did my best. 
that's uh, farming is farming. I like that a lot. Um, and well, I tell you what, thank you everybody for listening today. Uh, Edwin Blosser, uh, we're so happy to have you on today. Uh, for those who are, uh, need a repeat, Edwin was the founder of Midwest Biosystems, uh, and we're so uh, happy to have him here today with us. He's also going to be at our uh, EcoAg conference and trade show in Columbus, Ohio, December 6th through 9th uh, this year. Uh, you can learn more at uh, acresusa.com. You can learn more about Edwin's business at www.midwestbiosystems.com. Uh, Edwin, thank you so much for being on the program today. Thank you very much, Ron. I appreciate it. Thank you. The gratitude is mine. That was a conversation with Edwin Blosser, recorded on Thursday, November 2nd, 2017, from our offices in Greeley, Colorado. Thank you again for listening to Tractor Time and Acres USA. Uh, you can learn more about us at www.acresusa.com. Uh, send us an email at podcast at acresusa.com or give us a call at 1 800 355 5313. Have a great week ahead. Thank you again for listening.